0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to Show Me The Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast.
1: Show Me The Meaning!
0: My name's Jared. I'm joined here with the Show Me The Meaning crew. We got Greg. What up? And Austin. Yo. And the Wisecrack CEO, Jacob. I was trying to remember, is this the... When was the last time he was on? I remember it was relatively recently. What's up, Jacob?
2: What's up? Synecdoche, New York, and Eyes Wide Shut. Only the good movies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he, pop, he pops in when he wants to talk about a movie that he loves. But uh, anyway, today we're talking about Mandy, the 2018 film directed by Panos Cosmatos, starring Nicolas Cage. I already know what Jacob thinks about this movie, so uh, let's start with Greg. I know Greg watched it this morning for the first time. <laughs> uh, let's hear it.
1: Wild movie. <laughs> Very wild. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a fan of Revenge, so yes. uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I really like the cinematography of it, for real, for real. I mean, the colors. Uh, it reminded me of, uh, what's the Harrison Ford? Blade Runner, mm. uh, with all the shadows, uh, the rain. Not a lot of dialogue, very Space Odyssey. I was into it. Uh, cheesy as fuck. <laughs> took me back to the 80s. It made me just enjoy Nicolas Cage more, though. You know, like, a lot of people shit on Nick, but I, I, I'm starting to love Nick, man, just because he just doesn't give a fuck. He's like, yo, this movie sounds weird as all hell, and you know what? I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to smile with blood all over my face and shiny white teeth at the end of it. <laughs> it was uh, it was good. It was very weird, culty. Um, I'm into cults. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I liked it. Um, I probably wouldn't watch it again, uh, but I, but I enjoyed it and it made me want to watch, uh, his first film. Uh, so yeah, I, I liked it. It was weird. Very weird. Yeah. Very, very twisted, dark fantasy Kanye West. Weird. Had anyone but,
0: said anything to you about this movie before?
1: I think I've heard you guys talk about it before, okay. but nobody else.
3: Okay. Cool. Uh, Austin, what about you? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I watched it last night and, um, I, I feel like I really missed out not being able to see it in the theater. You know, like it was cool. I sat in my living room with the lights all out, and I had my my head or my earbuds in, and blasted the music, and um, and I was kind of like just locked into the screen, which I think allowed me to immerse myself into the aesthetic. But if you can, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, or you want to see it a second time, and you haven't seen it on the big screen, maybe you saw it on a laptop. I'd say try and go see it at like an art house theater. I'm gonna try actually. I don't know if it'll be here and have a, a a theatrical release, but I'm going to try because I feel like it would just kind of make the grotesque even more grotesque, you know? Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know what to think about it. It's, it's a film that I'm still kind of working through thinking through, but I agree with Greg about the aesthetic. I thought that visually it was interesting, you know, if we're going to like name drop and like cross reference, you know, I was thinking about like Refn uh, and like neon demon with the use of primary colors um, I thought it had some really interesting psychedelic uh, psychedelic themes and aesthetics that it was exploring. It and apparently the dude's dad that directed it directed like First Blood Part Two and Cobra and a couple oh. other like schlocky mm-hmm. eighty films. So oh. I'm like, oh, so I'm totally thinking now about like like early eighties, late seventies, Grindhouse, grainy kind of cinema as well, and all of that was in there. So it was something interesting. I think film nerds, cinephiles will love this movie and from an aesthetic perspective and even a thematic perspective um but yeah so i i i enjoyed the aesthetic experience but i'm not sure what that means about what i think about the film overall i'm still working through that
0: good answer all right jacob let's hear it
2: oh man this movie oh it's just <laughs> the best i think i think i was i think totally. it's like one of my cinephiles.
3: favorite cinephiles and call me a cinephile i
2: don't even think i'm a cinephile i just think God, for whatever reason, you know, those movies that don't have a reason, where you don't you don't have to, like, justify it or think through the logic of it, but you just let it wash over you, and it changes your life. Like, those movies, to me, those are the ones. And, like, the, the the this is one of those movies, to me. I think I saw it the first time on a jumbo screen at a friend's house. We were watching it on a big screen in the dark on, like, he'd bought these old movie seats. So I felt like I had that experience. Jarrett saw it in theaters. I didn't get that. I wasn't that lucky. But... Holy crap! I loved it the first time. Saw it again today, and loved it even more. And I don't, I can't explain what it is exactly about the movie. Most of the films that I love are more like Synecdoche, or 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 Magnolia, or There Will Be Blood. Having like these big, like, long time spans, and they really, they span like every every like morsel of the human experience right like loss and death and and ambition and regret and this movie is just so simple it's like one simple story one simple theme but it's beautiful and like the music and the color and the gore they're all characters in this movie and it's just like an experience an emotional experience more than it is like a story but I, I, it, it is my movie. It, I love it. I think it's like my favorite movie since *Tree of Life*, and that movie also kind of wow. moved me in this kind of way. Uh, different, obviously, but I just fucking love it. It's a fucking rocking movie. But Jacob, I just have to say,
0: this is crazy to me because I know one, you don't really like Nick Cage. I
2: know. Two. I don't that, really that's like violence. To even say that. I I know. I realize that. I actually do you like know, him in certain roles, but let's just say I don't like him in one movie. <laughs> well, okay. But you don't really like violence. I don't like violence and I don't like action movies. Hmm. This somehow I don't know what it is. I I I I told Alec that I was I was with Alec when I saw it for the first time, and I was drinking an IPA beer, which I just finally got into, <laughs> into IPAs for the first <laughs> time in my life. And again, something between that and this movie were like that. Kind of mental chiropractics that I needed. Like, this is the movie. I do love Face Off. I do love Con Air. I do like, I love The Matrix. Like, I like select action films. I can't tell you what it is about this one that worked for me, but like, this, I guess what it is, like, this entire time, I guess, like, a John Wick style, like, I'm just rooting for him so much. I want this revenge as badly as he does. And, and like
0: I, the whole aesthetic, of this movie is so grungy. This is like Ryan's car, the movie, <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: uh, and and that's that's not actually, a Jacob thing usually.
2: No, it's it's like I guess it's like, it's like a, like the Grindhouse style. It's got like a lot of noise and grit, yeah,
4: but it's, it's beautiful.
2: It's really beautiful. Like like the color palette, it, it's just gorgeous. I mean, honestly, every like any frame that I stopped in this movie, I kept thinking, God, that's a beautiful shot. And it happens again and again like there's like this very ethereal sort of like trip I mean it's trippy I guess like you just have that kind of aesthetic constantly, but the colors are constantly morphing and changing and turning and you just don't see a movie that looks like this ever ever I mean this is it's it's like trio Life had a very distinct and unique look or I think about that movie um like uh uh what's that like that film about like flying uh, over Tokyo on the high i can't remember the name of that Oh, the, enter the void like enter the oh, void yeah. style Death like, a specific for sure. look i i kind of felt like this was like the revenant plus john carpenter plus enter the void like having a baby it was like this crazy yeah i don't know mixed with a little it, like hobo with a shotgun <laughs> like when he wields <laughs> that weapon and we see the fucking mandy title come on i'm i'm literally jumping up i'm like jumping up and down with energy and i don't get that way with any movies I, who knows what this is it's just yeah
0: i mean the way that you're describing how it seems to transcend reason is how i feel about twin peaks i don't really know exactly what happens but this feels it like takes, that episode it takes, takes me that somewhere, somewhere. Twin peaks, actually,
2: too. it has those those sort of ghost walkers those black skulls they do remind me a bit of that. Is it episode eight or whatever that episode was? That sort of that special episode with those folks who just sort of are doused in oil. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, so yeah, my experience with this movie is I did see it in theaters, and wow, I was just I didn't know what I was watching. <laughs> and, and yes, I agree with everybody that it really is something that needs to be seen in the theater. For the first act of the film, I really couldn't discern the line between what was pure style and what was substance or style as substance. I really couldn't really put my finger on what was going on up until she gets kidnapped. And there was a girl sitting next to my girlfriend who, when the scene happened where she gets burned, was uncontrollable crying, like (laughs) bawling. She was so... Disturbed. Wow. And there was this tension in the audience because I think a lot of people just didn't know what they were getting into and they were all just disturbed. And
2: it was very unique. I remember Jared coming to my house. You came over to the house and you had just seen the movie, I think, the night before, and you just said, I I don't know what I watched last night. Like you were like the first thing he says, I want you to see it and sort of visually like help me understand what was going on. But I just you were like, you couldn't explain it. Like There was nothing.
0: Yeah. Because, yeah. It's an experience. And it's just a I'm, I'm glad. And then I watched it for a second time yesterday on a plane, which is probably the worst setting to watch it in possibly because a plane is loud and you really want to be able to get into the zone. But upon that second viewing, I really, really dug it. Uh, I guess just having been primed of what to expect it allowed me to perhaps slow down and appreciate some of the aesthetics. I mean, I love Nicolas Cage, love Nicolas Cage. So, so of, say, of course, I was holiness. excited. Yeah, I was excited to see him, and I am somebody who likes violent action movies, and I like revenge, and I'm all down for stuff that's super stylistic, as long as it's not drawn out and boring. But upon a second viewing, I was able to kind of contextualize the pure shock from the first screening, and uh, yeah, I like this movie a lot.
1: What's the uh, meaning behind it, though? Like that's well, what I was trying to like.
0: We're about fix- to show you. <laughs> <your baby. laughs>
1: I'm All like, right. I'm just. I mean, I I know the the Reagan speech, mm-hmm. uh, the porn. That shot where he's killing it, where they're fighting, and it's like the VHS porn is in the middle. It was a beautiful shot, and I know that has like some some representation. But I just couldn't. You know, only watched it once, and it was early this morning. But I just I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, what's- I mean. We're the gonna 80s, violence, you know.
0: We're going to play around with stuff, but I don't think that we need to impose meaning on everything. And in in this case, if this is a movie that is more about style or is more about mood and conveying a tone... Then, you know, we can leave it at that. But I think there are some interesting things about it that we can talk
3: about. I do love how Reagan, the Reagan speech, he says, majority of Americans are opposed to porn. I wish he'd lived in 2018 where it was like, you have porn in your pocket <laughs> wherever you go. And trust yeah, me, buddy. those motherfuckers were just lying, okay?
0: We're not, not, not even the... Like, I guess, what the moral majority of today, not even they condemn it anymore. No,
3: even then they didn't. They just said that when they were in public because they had to put on a pretty face. But, you know, in the corner, they're jacking off while reading a fucking Playboy or something like that. Left-handed.
0: Uh, before we <laughs> move on, I think Ryan sent us a voicemail. You got that on there, Greg? Let me
1: see. Yep, here we go.
5: What up? Show me the meaningers. It's Ryan, your boy. Anyway, sorry I couldn't be there today, but I wanted to give a few thoughts about Mandy. So the first time I tried to watch this movie with my girlfriend Hannah, we were so pumped and then we turned it on, we get an hour through it, and then we realized we were watching the wrong movie called Mandy. It was (laughs) this movie about an agoraphobic girl that was in love with a sock puppet. I highly do not recommend it. I give that Mandy an F+. Anyway, then finally we realized we are watching the wrong one, so we started the real Mandy. And to be Perfectly honest, I was pretty dang disappointed. I had the highest hopes for this movie and I kind of feel like it's very much a lot of weirdness for the sake of being weird, which is a genre I love usually. I, You know, I've seen a million exploitation movies and this kind of feels like a very much trying to make a weird midnight exploitation movie to some Success, I would say, but and honestly, I would preface this also that I think my biggest regret of 2018 was not seeing the movie Mandy in a movie theater because I really believe
1: yeah. more than any other
5: movie this year that that really kind of sealed the deal for me not liking it as much. I'm watching it on my fucking laptop no. and it's like, i supposed to be really loud and, you know, weird looking. And it just wasn't. It just didn't have that effect. I feel like you need a full theater full of people that you can look to and mouth the words, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> while you're watching this? For you to really get the full Mandy effect. So I think I kind of fucked myself by watching it at home. But uh, so I don't recommend that to anybody. But I'm gonna, but, but honestly, I, I, I'm really conflicted because I don't want to give this guy who obviously made a went out of his way to make a really cool original movie, you know, shit for it. But I don't think it really worked for me. So I'm gonna give it a an unfortunate C-plus to B-minus. And The extra B-minus is just because it, it is, you know, he did try to make something cool, but didn't work. Anyway, goodbye. I love you all. That
2: You know, I, I, just, <laughs> I read this. Uh, I was reading an article on the movie. This guy named William Babiani from The rap wrote this review, and the first sentence on it kind of summed it up, and that's like looking at Ryan's reaction and my reaction, sort of pretty polar opposite. He says, Mandy will drive some folks crazy and others into throes of ecstasy. It's a deliberately paced, ultra-violent, outlandishly stylish delivery system for Nicolas Cage's wild-eyed acting style, Mm. and a thoughtful meditation about why death metal totally rules. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, is there really that much death metal in the movie? You know, the part at the end, it, it almost felt like a destination when we get to the part of the church at the end that music is rocking i i even have like this app to crank my ipad volume all the way up on this second viewing and uh like to crank it up like to 200 percent.
3: it it totally arrives at death metal toward the end like that's that's totally a lot of the homage of the style yeah and it's got a it's got like a death metal or black metal aesthetic to it and then of course it opens with the quote about you know when i'm Bear, or when I die, bury me deep, and then play speakers at my feet and play rock and roll and shit like that. And those are the final words of a dude who was executed um, in the United States. On uh, um, what's it called? Uh, what? Where you go to jail because you murder somebody? Capital punishment. <laughs> so, and those were like his last words. So there is something kind of morose and death metally and rock and rolly that frames the film because obviously that's how it starts and then that's how it ends so it kind of bookends it
2: and it's this johan johansson uh who did the music who died very shortly after making the movie uh of a cocaine overdose interesting which is also pretty i guess he, he he did a, he did a, <laughs> a,
0: a nick cage type of line Dude, that there. is that, that, that is by far my favorite
2: single shot in the movie <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> and sure. that LSD hit. Yeah. Well, that one's also pretty rockin'. Boom. The whole, yeah. The, also, my least favorite part aesthetically are the dream sequences, the sort of animated dream sequences feel like a different movie.
0: Yeah. Although, in this movie, it's like they could show me anything. They could show me anything, and I'd be like, okay, you know, I've already seen the weirdness. Was, I can buy it.
1: It was real Tarantino. Like, certain, certain aspects of it. <laughs> Just the way they, uh, the it, title... How they kept bringing back the title scene uh, with the chapters. Yeah, and Kill Bill has
0: that animated exactly. sequence yep. too. Yeah. All right, guys, let's go into a recap. So, Red and his girlfriend Mandy live in relative seclusion in the peaceful Shadow Mountains. One day while on a walk, Mandy catches the eye of Jeremiah, the leader of a religious cult called the Children of the New Dawn. This single glance turns into an obsession for Jeremiah, so he sends one of his goons, Brother Swan, to kidnap her. Before he leaves, Jeremiah gives him a mysterious artifact called the Horn of Abraxas. Using the Horn of Abraxas, Brother Swan summons a band of biker mutants to capture Mandy. The cultists drug Mandy with a giant bug, and Jeremiah tries to indoctrinate her, but when she rebuffs his advances and humiliates him, Jeremiah and the children burn her alive as a tied-up red watches on. The cultists leave and Red escapes his binds. He then retrieves a crossbow from his friend who tells him the mutants are called the Black Skulls, LSD couriers who took a bad batch and have never been right since. Red crafts a badass axe and vows vengeance. He tries to pick one off, but crashes his car and is kidnapped and brought to their compound. Red escapes his binds again and murders all the Black Skulls in the house, but not before doing a giant line of coke and tasting a little bit of LSD. Red approaches the chemist who points him in the direction of the Children of the New Dawn. When Red reaches them, he kills them all and confronts Jeremiah in the abyssal lair where he crushes his skull with his bare hands and burns the place down. He leaves in his car, has a vision of Mandy next to him, and drives off where we see behind him are two moons. End of
1: movie. Yeah, great shot. Those moons are beautiful. Yeah. Someone wrote, uh, should I watch this film high? Definitely. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. I was even
0: I was even going to tell Definitely. Greg, Greg, if, if at know. any time you wanted to break your sobriety, Believe now would me. be the time. Oh, I know. I
1: was watching. I was like, oh, this would be great on mushrooms. I, <laughs> was, you know, I think it would be a, a, great a mushroom too far. Movie. I watched
2: it with a brewski. Works perfectly.
1: Very nice. <laughs> very nice. <laughs> very, very nice. All right, so,
0: I, so I wanted to talk about the opening quote, but it seems like Austin already covered that, and he actually had more uh, insight on that than I did. So wait, who was this guy who said it before he was put to death on death row?
3: Yeah, fuck. Hold on a second. I had it, and then I closed it because I didn't think I needed it because I didn't know if we were going to talk about it. But um, if you Google the quote, so what is the quote again? It's, when I die, bury me deep, lay two speakers at my feet, wrap some
0: headphones around my head, and rock and roll me when I'm dead.
3: Okay. Uh, give me two seconds, and I will tell you.
2: Oh, it turns out, yeah, the last words of a murderer and kidnapper, Douglas Roberts, who was executed in 2005... Oh, interesting.
3: And this is uh, an
2: article on the Portland Mercury by Eric Hen- Henriksen, who's kind of pointed that out.
3: Yeah, and I and I found it from uh, the New York Review Daily. So, it seems that it's corroborated by a couple of sources. So, I mean, it's kind of again rock and roll, but there's something interesting about that as being why is that the quote that frames the film,
0: right? It it seems to emphasize a purely aesthetic reading of the film. Right? Just like, hey, this is rock and roll aesthetic. That's the point.
1: Somebody died saying this. You right. Know? Who You're killed right. a man. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Anyway, the next thing I want to talk about is uh, drugs and drinking. So one thing that I found interesting was at the beginning of the film uh, when we have that awesome intro song and Nicolas Cage is cutting down trees. He's at work and he gets into the helicopter and he initially refuses a drink from his friend or something. And then... You know, after Mandy gets burned alive, and he has his epic freakout moment, he like takes out a bottle of vodka from like a drawer in that his bathroom, hidden. yeah, that was hidden. So I, I like it seems that maybe he had a drinking problem in the past, that he got sober, and yeah. now, he, you know, obviously shit hit the fan, so Slow he's on. going all in, yeah,
3: yeah. And you guys he's remember the demons, man,
0: yeah. There's a shot at the beginning of the like the very beginning of the movie, when we have this kind of montage of dissolves and you see some of Mandy's art and you see her face. Is she smoking opium? She's, there was like a shot of her smoking something.
1: I always thought she was just smoking cigarettes. I thought she was just
0: smoking it was, weed out of a pipe. Oh, uh, was it? Oh, okay. okay. It was a weird yeah, looking pipe. pipe and, and, I, and I felt like the, it was like black you know weed is usually green or mm-hmm. purple or orange or you know something like that <laughs> or white <laughs> um but uh yeah so i was wondering about that and then of course the whole lsd and the coke uh stuff and um yeah before i move on did you guys have anything other anything else to say about that about how the movie's kind of deals with drugs or kind of relishes in drugs
1: it's a big drug movie
0: it's a yeah, big drug movie yeah
2: aside the aesthetic yeah i don't i think just the the visuals, like the otherworldliness of of the drugs, seems to be, like like even you can look at the alcohol as that way. Like he he drinks that alcohol and he unleashes what he needs to become, uh, in the same way like the the drugs are helping her paint these fantasy worlds. The the books that she's reading are kind of about exploring other worlds. It it, it mm. like the drugs are constantly transporting you to different different places visually and mm. and uh, emotionally. And I I don't know. I think it's just sort of like it's a it's a movie. That sort of captures that spirit of just of not of being inebriated somehow with some substance by something, just not being in the normal state.
1: And his drugs get harder and harder throughout the movie. Yes. You know, they it starts do. off with cigs, then it's the vodka, then it's the Coke, then it's the L S D and the killing gets brutal more more brutal every um. The, the further the movie goes. Mm-hmm. So it's is that chemist dude
3: making uh, micro dots at the end? I think so. I
2: think that guy's just like slurping on his fingers. Like, yeah, that. <laughs> I love that.
3: Because I was when he was doing it, I was like, if that's micro dots, his fingers, he's not wearing gloves. I was like, I know, he's still like yeah, he soaked into your skin.
2: Yeah, he was just totally, totally <laughs> fucking tweaked at that point. That guy, He's been on cloud nine well, for a well, long that's time. That's
1: why he's he, like, he didn't even have to hear the guy talk. He was like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, He just felt everything.
2: Yeah, but he he seemed to have understood everything, you know, like yeah. in, those, in those drug moments, sometimes you can uh, communicate without communicating or without yeah, speaking.
3: I mean, so uh, the French poet Rimbaud, it's R-I-M-B-A-U-D, he has this phrase where he talks about the deregulation of the senses. And he was this amazing poet who died in like his early 20s or something like that. But he wrote this amazing poetry in his like late teens. And he talks about this idea of what, of of the kind of benefits of deregulating our senses. You know, our senses... They kind of like keep us together on uh, in our daily lives, which is great because it helps us make judgments about should I cross the street now or how do I reach for this can on the shelf? Like I can actually judge my motor faculties and it connects to your, uh, your mental cognitive faculties. But that sometimes that there's this amazing effect that can happen when you scramble the codes a little bit within your own psychological being and it releases different flows of potency and connection with the world and it kind of reorients things. And for me, this whole film was about that. It was like... Not only are the characters having their senses deregulated, whether it's through their own uh, intake of chemicals, but the aesthetic kind of induces a deregulation of our senses based on our expectation going in. So, you know, people are like, oh, it's a psychological film or it's a psychedelic film. Like, what does that mean? I think what it means is that it's actually acting upon us as it deregulates our senses in watching it because it – It sort of confounds our expectations of what we're expecting in a genre film you know it's not just a straight slasher film it's not just a straight revenge film it's not just a straight aesthetic film right and so it's combining all of these things
2: yeah Yeah. that it sort of like the drugs get you into a certain state of mind and the film is doing the same thing like it's getting you into a state whether it's the same exact state doesn't matter but it's getting you into state into like a into an altered state of some kind i totally feel that i feel like you know, you can consume this movie in in a matter of just state, like in a state, it's like a mind altering state altering sort of experience for me. hundred percent. So after what you said, Austin, how do you read the
0: two moons at the end or the two suns, two planets, whatever we're seeing at the end, the basically the landscape has completely transformed. Is this supposed to indicate some sort of transformation within red's character into like, is he just gone in terms of his senses? Has the
3: violence transformed him? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm not so sure about it from that angle, but I couldn't help but think about Lovecraft and the idea of cosmic horror in relation sure. to also the grotesque throughout this whole film. So the grotesque is a, th- a term that is used in like literary criticism. Um, Umberto Eco wrote an amazing book called like On Ugliness, or just maybe Ugliness. I can't remember if it's on or just ugliness. But where he talks about the idea of the grotesque, how it's been historically charted, you know, uh, through – from like the the Middle Ages um, and even previous to that up through kind of postmodern efforts to try to redeem the ugly and, and actually embrace the ugly or ignore the uglier or kind of like understand why is it that something is deemed as ugly or grotesque or kind of excessive and how can we kind of like uh, reconcile with it. And I think that there's something going on here too is that there's sort of like this – we're, we're confronted with the grotesque. You've got those fucking weird dude beast things that are monstrous things that are on their motorcycles, loud noises. And, you know, if they've got freaky outfits and they've got spikes on them. And, you know, they're kind of like not human but not not human. They're kind of like a more than human beast kind of thing. Um, and then you've got Nicolas Cage who then has to kind of like become that in order to fight them, right? Like hu- the human world is not sufficient. I mean that's even why Jeremiah and the cult have to call on that biker gang to, to to get the thing that they want. They have to they have to tap into the more than human. And so the Nicolas Cage, in order for him to exactly get revenge, he has to become monstrous. And so I was thinking a lot about that. And then there's this Lovecraft quote that I kind of uh, have right here. Um, and it's from an essay by a philosopher named Ben Woodard who writes a lot on Lovecraft and cosmic horror and like the weird and the non-human or the post-human or the inhuman. And so he says this, he says, "Uh, Lovecraft speaks of the tension between the natural and the unnatural in his short story, The Unnameable. And then this is the quote. Lovecraft says, If the psychic emanations of human creatures be grotesque distortions, what coherent representation could express or portray so gibbous and infamous a nebulosity as the specter of a malign chaotic perversion? itself a morbid blasphemy against nature and it's it's that idea that this is like a blasphemy against the beauty of nature right like the the cosmic is ordered and harmonious you know the word cosmos is harmony and beauty and we look at the stars and, and from our perspective there's an order but this film challenges that and I think the end is a culmination of that it's like this cosmic grotesque disruption that then you reconcile with at the end which is why He's covered in blood and he's driving, but he's got a big fucking crazy smile on his face with his beautiful white teeth. So there's this juxtaposition between the natural, the unnatural, the grotesque, the beautiful. And, and I think that's kind of what's going on.
1: Shiny white teeth. It's like he got his teeth whitened right before that scene. You know, they're just <laughs> he's got he great have teeth. Cushioning. He he's got great teeth.
3: What's that machine that has like the LED lights that's all the rage right now in Hollywood? Oh, uh, lit-
1: the like, what do you put the mouthpiece in and it's the blue light? Is it High
3: Smile? <laughs> high Smile or
1: something. I think yeah. that's what it is. <laughs>
0: All right. Uh, I like that ans- answer a lot, Austin. Um, let's talk about the Reagan thing that uh, Greg brought up earlier. So, uh, similarly, this is kind of the thing I always latched onto in terms of, like, where do I even start? We're <laughs> trying to figure out what this movie might be about. It's also weird that it seems like they didn't really have to give it a specific year because mm. most of it takes place in the forest, and I guess the guy is, like, a record player. But other than that, there it seems pretty... You know, it could take place in almost any time period. Um, but anyway, let me go ahead and read it. So this is the I beginning wish, of the I movie. I wish there
3: wasn't a title card at that point, actually. I Yeah. I felt like it would have been just as clear and kind of more, like it wouldn't have taken me out of it. Like it took me out when that first title card came up and it said 1983. But then there were three more or two more title cards that kind of like yeah. were chapter breaks where I was kind of like, okay, I get it. But I kind of wish it just left you with Reagan talking and then you knew that it was the 80s.
0: Yeah. yeah, well, the, the actual title card that says Mandy
2: isn't until an hour,
1: hour and 15, 15. minutes yeah, into yeah. the so movie. Totally, yeah. yeah, the it's movie. halfway through. Well, but there's
3: yeah. a second one that says, like, the children of whatever.
2: It's the children of the New Dawn, which is, I think, the name of the sort of the Bible. It's the name the of the cult. Okay. And, and then yeah. you've got, yeah, the Shadow Mountains are, earlier on. But also, aesthetically, those change, right? Like, you have three very distinct styles. The first one's almost like a Liberace-type, dazzling, beautiful, mm. bright. Yeah, yeah this is right. this is what I asked Jacob about when I was at his house yeah these these title cards so the first one again the shadow mountains what we're talking about here at ad 1983 and i'd like to read the quote again or hear you'd read the quote because i don't I, I caught a little bit of it i know if it's reagan but i think i i get what you're saying like it didn't need a distinct time i think that it's sort of playing off the whole you know it's like the the stranger things nostalgia for the 80s the yeah. the, the love of these the 80s sort of horror films as well but um i i agree it didn't probably need a distinct time but it didn't really pull me out of it too much but anyway that first one's very dazzling sparkly bright pretty clean blue which is very you know obviously cool and calm and then it starts to move into the children of the new dawn the second title card is like very stranger things almost like the same exact font or like john carpenter's the thing or the stephen king novel like stephen king novels and films that all had like that red glowing text and then when we get to mandy we get into like Rage and veins and arteries and torture and barbed wire and kind of like you know the real demented and perverse. Mm. Which is, uh, yeah, I don't know if they. I think they are distinct zones and you can feel it in the movie. The tone changes quite a bit. But what's the what's the Reagan quote, Jared? The Reagan quote is he
0: says, "There's a great spiritual awakening in America, a great renewal of the traditional values that have been the bedrock of America's goodness and greatness." An overwhelming majority of Americans disprove of pornography, and then it cuts off. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. Once again, I don't have a definitive answer of why this is there or what this movie's about. I can only really muse out loud. Uh, but it's interesting to me about how the Jesus freaks, or that's what Nicolas Cage calls them, they're almost like a combination of what the Reagan era reawakening was reacting to and the actual religiosity. So they're religious zealots, I guess. I mean, they never really mention Christ. They really seem to just be worshipping Jeremiah. But, you know, there's pornography going on uh he like exposes himself there's a lot of hints to the fact that he uh has sexual relationships with all the women in uh the cult and so i found it interesting how there was this interesting combination of the religion like a hyperbolic religious reawakening and all the drug culture of the 70s that the reagan awakening was reacting to
1: dick shot too
3: oh yeah i thought that there was maybe a little um intimation about some some potential homosexual relationships as well. There could the have been cult. like
5: that
2: he
3: like when he held his face you're saying? Well, remember at the end how Jeremiah says, I'll suck your dick. And it was just the ease with which he was inclined to do that. And I felt this intimacy, and obviously not all intimacy between men needs to be somehow that they want to fuck each other, of course. But there was was like this connection. And because the cult was run with such sort of like this sensuality and sexuality that cuts through, I wouldn't be surprised if there was also – and remember the two other boys kind of had like longer hair. Jeremiah kind of has longer hair. So I was wondering if there was more of like this fluidity with – Um, with like sexual preferences that would have taken place in there, which would again kind of would be uh, something to draw a distinction between Reagan's moral uh, quote at the beginning. It's that idea that, that world, the world of Reagan, the world that isn't depicted except for that one little soundbite is the world where like, oh, yeah, people don't like pornography. Everything clean, is clean and it's ordered like I was talking about earlier. It's it's that which is kind of like the natural, the beautiful, the clean, that everything is put together. But the world that we are exposed to is all perverse. And, like,
2: the, like Jeremiah sort of uh, – Capitulating at the end, it just seemed out of just pure desperation. It didn't seem like oh, yeah. there was an ease to it. It just seemed like more of like, "What is it that you want? Like, what can I give you? Like, do you want me to suck your dick? I'll do anything I can do. Like, whatever." It didn't. You know, it just seemed to come out of a place of complete desperation and begging. And then,
3: you know, he obviously his character keeps swinging from sort of state to state, whether it be right. Like, but I, if someone had me in that situation, I don't think I would go to. I'll suck your dick. that. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> so it's the fact that the fact that he even went there, and you know, the weird thing before he said it. I thought it before he said it. I thought I was like, oh, this is going to be he's, well, gonna, he's like, on his knees. Right I thought he was actually going to stick. I thought that Nicholas Cage was, was going to like st- like stick his head. I, th- I was like, oh, there's something going on here. So I don't know. I couldn't escape that. There was something interesting happening at it, within that register.
1: I thought it was a little comic break too, because the movie has like jokes in it. Yeah, you yeah. know,
3: it was like, because he, the way he said, "I'll suck
1: your dick, man," <laughs> you know, he's <it> <laughs> like, a, like a Dave Chappelle, yeah, <laughs> yeah, come yeah. on, man. Oh yeah,
0: like, uh, what's what's the crackhead's name?
1: <laughs> um, uh, Tyrone Biggins. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll anyway,
0: suck your dick. yeah. Well, th- this brings me up, brings to the the next point I want to bring up, which is sex, death, and porn.
1: Someone uh, wrote a, a dope uh, chat to me. That's what the what, film. What's the guy's name? Uh, Tilios Abrax? Okay. I'm sorry, Tilios, man, my bad. Uh, to me, that's what the film is all about, that fine line between insanity and spirituality. Oh, there, okay, yeah, that's a good yeah. one.
0: So in terms of the p- omnipresence of sex and specifically porn, I, I listed out some stuff. So as you guys just mentioned, not only does uh, Jeremiah show his dick to Mandy, but he tries to sleep with her. Uh, both the old women and Jeremiah... Offer red sexual favors to avoid being murdered. Remember the woman, the old woman before says like, I'm a very comforting lover. I can anticipate my lover's every desire. And then uh, this is one of my favorite things in in horror movies or movies about murder is when they kind of play with a act of violence and kind of connect it to an act of sexuality. So Brother Swan gets the axe pushed into his mouth like it's a dick. Yep. Uh, the blood sprays all over Nick Cage's face as he's pushed up against a TV with porn on it. It's kind of like a weird, gross cum shot. Oh, totally. Oh, I didn't Uh, know this. And then my favorite (laughs) is when, when, when Nicholas Cage at the end when he crushes Jeremiah's head, he's exhaling. He's like,
1: ah, 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 like he just
2: can. Ah. Yeah, yeah. And um, I I bought. My mom walked in. I was like, "What are you watching?"
0: I don't really have any meaning to discern this. I just find it interesting. And I've there have been other movies in which they play with this proximity between sex and death. And I always find it like intellectually titillating when they do this. But I don't really know if it makes us recontextualize the narrative in any way.
1: I thought that was just playing on the 80s horror movie theme. You know, like any person that has sex, the virgin always lives. Anytime a girl shows her boobs, next thing you know, she's getting slashed up. Uh, It's the same themes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the animated sequence of Mandy where she's always naked. In Mm -hmm. in general, I found it really interesting that there's – I don't know what the actress's name is, but there's something about that woman's face. It's that
1: scar. And and that scar. scar. And she has one
2: eye dilated. So her right eye, the left to us when we're staring at it, when she's coming out of the lake in that very first shot of her only one eye is dilated. And they play with this dilation of the eyes for every character who touches the LSD. You see every character kind of their eye almost completely becomes black and it almost goes beyond the point of the iris. Like it goes, it just, like their eyeball com- becomes black. Mm. Um, and yeah, that that it's odd. If you see, if you go back and look at it, I noticed the first time and saw it back the second time, Mandy only has one eye that's dilated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, and it's the opposite side of her scar. So yeah, she's got a very unique face a <laughs> very, very unique not, face i, I don't look.
3: believe that's that's her kind of standard look though she was in a black mirror episode um which one and she was in she's been in a, a, a couple of things that you might recognize her from um I'm trying to remember what else which, but which most, black most recently was that i remember she was in a black mirror episode in maybe not the last season but at least this one of the last two seasons um and it's the one where she like She's like involved in like a hit and run with a friend and then like he oh, feels guilty yeah. years later and she wants to report yeah. it so she ends up killing him.
1: I thought that was her and then yeah. there's like memory
3: yeah. there's like this person who's like a an investigator of memories and shit. So she kills the uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she's yeah, in that I, and, I know and she about. doesn't um if you look if yeah, if you and if you look at photos of her and stuff like that, she's uh, she's actually quite a striking woman. Whereas in this they kind of almost I was kinda of almost thinking of her as um she kinda of looks like uh like a very natural, kind of like like you would think of like a woman of the forest, you know?
1: Kind of yeah. like, I like the way you said that off. Does that make <laughs> from sense? Like, from, from like a, fan, <laughs> totally, from like yeah. a fantasy book, yeah, like the one like she, she reads like almost. she
3: emerges out of the forest, like she comes up out of the water, and she's got this long, beautiful, flowing hair. hair. And yeah. yeah,
0: there's something that works about that close-up shot of her behind the fire, in the early of the move, in the early parts of the movie, that's just so transfixing.
1: Hmm. It's just a beautifully shot. I, I love the the bed and the 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 opening, like the window behind the bed, that big square oh, it's, window. It's always or, changing colors yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
2: And also, if you just like, their whole house is full of um, full of windows. Like when they show that yeah. in the wider shot from the outside, it's just tons and tons of windows. None of them kind of the same shape or size are all pretty different. There's an architectural style that does that, where each window is different. It's up in like Sea Ranch. And uh, if you remember that, Jared, we've been up there before, but like the the architectural style is that nothing is like no two windows are the same. And that house has like this almost mosaic like window thing. Not that I think it has any meaning, but just just more beauty. Like there's all these these really cool things dropped out the movie.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this goes again to that thing that that Umberto Eco writes about with like reclaiming or redeeming ugliness or the grotesque it's like these things that we think oh that's out of order like it's not symmetrical the windows aren't all the same size but somehow by shining a beautiful blue light through that one window but there's red in the foreground in this juxtaposition of primary colors it creates a sort of redemption of the oppositions or, or a redemption of our confounded expectations and and you see this throughout and I think that this fits with the themes of sexuality that that there is like a libidinal because sometimes, like, you can fetishize the grotesque, right? You want that that stimulation that is beyond uh, just kind of like the tame things that religion tells you. So if the Reagan quote is meant to frame that, like, oh, we're this, like, spiritually enlightened uh, community now, now that, like, Reagan is in charge and neoliberalism has taken hold, but there's still the grotesque that's going on. There's still the excessive that doesn't b- live by your rules, that isn't just simply... Constrained by the dogmatism of Christian morality that's being imposed by a certain political party or a certain historical moment and that all of these themes are kind of like being woven through as alternatives to that excessive to that beyond that so you have monsters and the monstrous and the cosmic and sex and porn and violence and um, homosexuality which at the time in particular wasn't something that was nearly as acceptable or affirming uh, or as that we would affirm now and so you have all these things that are intentionally confounding this kind of like tight neat package of connection uh, or, or this tight neat package of community that supposedly defined early 80s Reaganism.
1: What about the uh, the radio tower? I saw you know, some he, like images of about
3: it. that. Yeah, in in that acid yeah. trip.
1: Hmm. You know, I guess when he first when he took the LSD, that's the first thing he saw. Somebody wrote that the radio tower emit a, fre- a frequency that is not supposed to be in nature, controlling human minds. Uh, yeah, I like that. I like that. Uh, what's that? Where, it know? definitely
0: calls back to him listening to the Reagan thing on the radio.
1: Reefer shifers. I don't know.
2: And everyone, everyone in the theater or in, the, in this experience like at this home theater, as soon as he like put it dabbed his finger into that into that uh, lSD and he was about to touch it. everyone was like, oh, and then it just sort of blasts, <laughs> you know it's like again, so uh satisfying.
0: yeah, let's talk about the Nicholas Cage as a meme because I think
2: yeah, it's necessary
0: it, yeah, I mean, so. We actually have written a video about this that we're not sure when it's coming out, but we're talking about how actors become memes. And we've talked about this a little bit with our John Wick podcast, how John Wick or like the sad Keanu meme kind of informed the creation of John Wick, whether they're aware of it or not. Just the fact that everyone knows that Keanu Reeves has had all these family tragedies and then there was the sad Keanu meme. And now John Wick is like this broken man, sad, who, guy. sad guy who gets sad revenge after someone fucks with his dog. <laughs> yeah. And um, I remember – I read today that originally Nicolas Cage was offered the role of Jeremiah. Oh. And he turned it down and instead he got the role of Red. And I'm just wondering if somebody else played Red, would this be an an entirely different movie? There are times where in in the theater – and this is why I wish everyone got to see it in a theater because as soon as Nicolas Cage started screaming in the bathroom – the audience lost it; they, they were laughing, that. and it was yeah. it was awesome. <laughs> they also started laughing when, of course, he just like explodes into this like kung fu style, and oh, like, that's breaks the, ba- the okay, guy's so, neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So similar <laughs>
2: again in this viewing experience is like shared viewing experience. Same thing; everyone was laughing at the bathroom scene, but I was not <laughs> laughing. I was in I was in his emotion, leaning forward, thinking, "Wow, like he it, it worked." For me, but yeah, everyone was laughing because he's a meme. They were just like, that's what they were there for. This was the main event to see Nick Cage be Nick Cage. And I, I luckily, maybe I'm not that that invested in that meme. Like it, it, I don't think of Nick Cage that way.
0: But it's hard for me not to believe that they didn't, they weren't aware of this and didn't lean into it. There's also, of course, right after he like does the ninja shit and breaks the guy's neck, he does a giant line of coke, like an, an inhuman line of coke, and then of course him dabbing. The thing, I mean, there's like, especially if you've seen Bad Lieutenant Porter called New Orleans, the idea of like Nicolas Cage doing a lot of drugs and like acting crazy. Uh, but there's also the part where he lights a cigarette on a decapitated,
1: burning head. It Everybody gets crazy saw that coming, though. Beautiful. Everybody oh, saw yeah. that coming a mile away, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean,
1: um, I, I love it. I, I hope he I hope he loves it. You oh, he ha-
2: I think I he does. Know. Like the I kung fu, I, I think really it's flattering. And then I he has so those too. eyes.
3: That is don't incredible. do take yourself too seriously. That, that's a part like a laugh out loud moment, for sure. <laughs> so I, I guess there was an interview with him where he said that he was really inspired by Kabuki theater and Kabuki masks in particular before this. So he was trying to kind of like use that to funnel the, like his character through. Like there's something about Kabuki and masks. And so his facial expressions are, again, supposed to be personae. Right. These these masks that he's presenting, um, which I thought was kind of another interesting layer to add to what it is that he's doing with his performance.
0: Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Do you think that cause Cosmatos, whatever his name is, and Nicolas Cage were very aware of like, you know, all right, we're going to make this a Nick Cage moment.
3: Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if if uh, because here's the thing, too, because remember, I grew up an actor and I'm still around a lot of actors. I mean, I have people staying with me right now that are, are London-based performers uh, and creatives. And we were actually talking about this movie earlier. And I think from, from like let's be like straight-up uh, hardcore, I'm concerned with performance theory types, I think it would be a disservice to performance. I don't think that Nick Cage would appreciate if he was reduced to Nick Cage, the persona. Because I think that he takes himself very seriously. I think he takes his craft seriously. I think that when he's looking at Kabuki theater and Kabuki masks to try to create some sort of nuance to this character, I don't think it's because he's like, oh, dude, I'm going to get people in the crowd laughing. I think it's because he really has an approach and a style and and maybe his approach and his his style is like habitual and so it's not like conscious where he's like I need to go find the thing that's going to be the thing to kind of like make this character come to life. Maybe it is, maybe it's not but at the very least I, I do think that he takes himself seriously in his craft and so I think it's a disservice from that perspective but from the perspective of the producers and the director I'm not surprised at all that they would play on that and use that to their advantage and the larger aesthetic of the film. Um, Because how can you not? Unless you live under a fucking rock, and these people don't live under rocks, you know that he's a memeified person. You know that he has a persona that is excessive of the body and the uh, enactments that you're going to get on set, that there's something beyond him that kind of like hovers in shadows around him. And so he could do one thing, but it communicates through a prism that is refracted through that persona. So I think you have to be aware of that. And, of course, you're going to play up to that because they know that that also puts butts in seats. And it makes it entertaining and fun and weird and wacky, and it just adds another layer. So,
0: I, you know, like like what Jacob said in terms of that he was totally into the character and just bought it. I mean, I did too, and that's what I like about these moments. And maybe it's just because I'm a big Nick Cage fan, but it works both ways for me. In parallel, I'm able, I'm able to appreciate what the character's going through and appreciate Nick Cage. Cage's performance, but at the same time, I also understand that there is something. There's another level going on here.
2: Yeah. So, oh, so the scene it, where Nick, so as he's watching Mandy get burned, that's the scene where I, I kind of felt. So I, I do feel again, like because he's become a like a, unfortunately, he's like a product of his own shenanigans. Like success. people just look at. Look at those scenes and laugh immediately if he's just being himself or acting. But I think that scene—I wonder if if that was if the audio is stripped out for in post, where it could have been one of those moments where it wasn't going to land properly unless they went slow mo and you saw him screaming with the barbed wire in his mouth, and they just decided to go pure silence and and only the score, or if that was intended from the get-go. I don't know, but I could see it being the kind of thing like where okay, it's over the top, we're losing the seriousness here if we kind of let the audio creep in and so we'll kind of make it a moment instead for me i I cried there the first time i saw that i was like this is devastating and when i see him in the bathroom i know again it's yeah it's funny it's silly it's the shot is incredible and pretty and playful but yeah he he sells it for me and i think you're like for you like the way you're putting it jared like there are two ways of feeling it experiencing it and reading it that's i i kind of feel that same way it's and and i get i get a little bummed
3: because Because he is a good actor, you know. He's He's he's, amazing. Over the top, but like I think Matchstick Matchstick Men is fantastic. Leaving Las Vegas is fantastic. I mean, Raising Arizona. I mean, I know we're going back now. Before he was memeified and maybe got a little erratic and kind of eccentric, but he's. I I still think that he's a very (laughs) capable artist performer.
1: I look. Nick is great, but that's just what happens. That's just what happens over time. Look, Michael Jordan is an amazing basketball player. And look at him, man. He's crying all over all over <laughs> social media. He's on every shitty meme. That's just what happens after time. You can be great, but if you stay in a business for a long time, you know, after a while people are just going to shit on you. Nick is awesome, and I think Nick the the movie wouldn't come across if he didn't have that dedication. If he didn't like that scene where he's drinking all the vodka if he knew that people were going to laugh at him, the scene wouldn't be as good as it was. Yeah. So what? it's a double edged sword, though. You know, he's great, but it is hilarious. I mean, he know we, he know he, he married Elvis's daughter. You know, I mean, like he knows what has happened through his life that that has made him viewed who he is you know what i mean and he
0: knows he knows he's spent hundreds of millions of dollars and <laughs> blows up <laughs> but yeah. yeah but i also think that if he just phoned it in if he just said all right i know what people want it's just a nicolas cage freak out moment it, it w- wouldn't even have been good exactly yeah, yeah. Exactly. he like has the, to go there he, he, he cried, has to go there vested, and because of that it's good yeah exactly yeah why do you guys think that uh he spared the girl? Like the young girl who
2: basically does Russian roulette to prove that she loves Jeremiah? I think it's because of the Russian roulette. I think that he I think he 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 while she's complicit, I think he
1: sees her as the
2: victim, as yet another yeah, victim.
1: Totally. Isn't she pregnant? She seemed no pregnant idea. in the beginning. Why? Yeah.
2: You... <laughs> yeah. What made you think that?
0: Uh,
1: the the dress she wore, like uh, the long flowy shirt that she wore, it just made me think that she was when she was walking it. in and she closed to, to have sex with him. I'm thinking, just seemed like she was pregnant.
0: I want to talk about real quick some of like the mystical elements in this because some of it can just be explained away by drug experiences, but some of it not. Like, what is the horn of Abraxas? Yeah. If they blow that thing and the the black skulls come. They have this thing called the Tainted Blade of the Pale Night, which is a, a blade with an eye on it. And there, of course, is the abyssal lair. Um, the the Emerald, girl says... Emerald glowing Stone. She yeah. says, it's all a beautiful dream, a dream he's having right now. Who's he? Is it God? Is it Jeremiah? Um, I thought it was Jeremiah. I really like this element. I like how, similar to what I was talking about earlier, with you can infer that Nicolas Cage's character once had a drug problem or a drinking problem, just from things that happen that are outside of dialogue, I really like how there's kind of this mythology that is hinted at, not explained, and it's just this element of mystery that's never really explained, but just makes you wonder about the world. Because at one point, even the, the, the Black Skulls who you say to yourself, like, Oh, okay, so I guess they they took a bad LSD trip and now they're weird. But that's not enough to explain how fucking weird they yeah, are. Yeah, and those sound effects. You know?
1: And if that one hit of LSD did that to, uh, to Red's character, <laughs> that dude drunk the whole mason jar? Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Of grease, it just looks like old uh, fat pig grease, right? <laughs> like bacon grease.
0: Yeah. Uh, all right so before we get into the mailbag uh, two things I want to bring up. One is the close up of Jeremiah morphing into Mandy's face as he's trying to indoctrinate her how it like morphs back and forth between it being both of their faces superimposed on each other oh, is yeah. so cool. Yeah.
2: And then let's talk about the Cheddar Goblin commercial. <laughs> That's so <laughs> that was I was so telling so the folks crazy. on this chat that like yeah, Cheddar Goblin is the official Twitter handle <laughs> for the movie, which is very <laughs> cool. It's become its own meme. That commercial is excellent. I thought it was – when I first saw it, I thought that, that was like an original commercial that just happened to be from the 80s that somehow they just placed in there. But, yeah, it was – No way. It, it's that, too that crazy. Obviously, obviously was made for this movie, and it, it he did a great job like recreating an 80s commercial. It
1: has to be a commercial sort of like that, though. I don't remember But it's definitely up, taken to the next level. I mean, oh, yeah. It's crazy. It's like puking.
0: Yeah, no corporation would allow a goblin to puke out their products.
1: <laughs> you know, <laughs>
3: It is amazing. <laughs>
1: It reminds me like the Nickelodeon with the slime and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Over the little kids. Yeah.
0: It's funny how I it seems like he is watching the TV, sees the commercial, and then realizes something and it motivates him to do something, but I I don't I think it's if it is, I don't know what it is. I think it's like there's comic relief. I'd love
2: to go through like all the funny moments, but I think it's just another one of those breaks because he goes, we just see we just saw Mandy get burned. He's walked in, and he's about to have his freak out. I don't think it prompted him to anything, but I think it's just sort of another break. There's these little pauses throughout the movie that have, like, a funny moment. What else kind of stood out to you guys as funny? Like, what were were the other funny moments aside from the Nick Cage moments?
0: I didn't really think anything at the beginning was funny. uh, Other than when... Mandy was kind of humiliating him, and I guess Jeremiah's whole speech was kind of funny, especially when he, you know, takes his clothes off. It's pretty funny. Well, and his when song is like,
2: it's like, "There's a man named Jeremiah." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrible song. Yeah, terrible song.
1: I love how she could do that high though, like high out of her mind. She was like, "You're still trash." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if you're going to kill me, you're still Oh, garbage. and then
0: I, yeah, that's another thing that in terms of the mystical elements that
2: fucking bug that they sting. Yeah. Over, like, right. What's up <inaudible>
1: with that? Jesus. That was a bug Scorpion? that was like, what,
2: like, like preserved in acid or something?
1: Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: Uh, er, yeah. It was like formaldehyde, but it was alive and swimming in goop. I was imagining maybe it's just, it's just like literally living in and breathing and it is, it is acid and it stings acid kind of thing. It was nuts. Trippy. <laughs> All right,
0: we're going to go into the mailbag. This first question is from our Discord server. You can join our Discord server and talk to us whenever you want at wisecrackplus.com. This is from our boy, Bear Zerker. Hey, asks a number of questions. First up is, what was the point of the tiger?
2: Yeah, there's a tiger on his T-shirt. He's got a tiger on his shirt earlier on in the film. He's wearing that when he sort of unleashes the dragon or unleashes the tiger in him, like when he's drinking and breaking free. Uh, he's actually wearing that a little bit earlier, but then he is wearing that during the scene of the burning and then later on in the car – or later on in, in, in the house when he's drinking. And and then you have the tiger in the cage being let free later. So I just thought those two must have been connected. I was going back to look at Mandy's painting from the beginning. There, was, She was drawing some sort of creature. I thought maybe it was a tiger too, but it turns well, out know, to there's be a, like a dog or something or like a wolf or something. There is a post-credit scene. Oh, there is? I did not see that.
0: Yeah, it's actually just one shot, and it's just a static shot of Mandy's art, and one of the pictures is Nicolas Cage in his quote-unquote favorite shirt that one of the guys cuts, and next to him is a tiger. Hmm. So I think Jacob probably hit it on, hit the nail on the head, saying it's just about him releasing his beast, probably the beast of violence and a shit ton of drugs that he had put away for years that mm-hmm. I think we can assume. Mm-hmm. Uh, Berserker also asks was this movie supposed to be funny or was I laughing inappropriately
2: I think it was supposed to be funny
0: hey
1: man you can laugh anytime you want, man. You do yeah. it you want. <laughs> it's, it's up to you you can bud. experience
2: this
3: gold any way you'd like yeah, yeah. you don't
1: yeah. need a laugh track
3: I mean this is this is one of the hallmarks of the grotesque is that the grotesque it's supposed to fit between the real and the unreal but also between the humorous and the serious and that's what makes something grotesque according to like the literary genre of examinations of what is grotesque literature what is grotesque art why is something grotesque versus not grotesque in this film I think we would classify as bathing and enjoying its grotesqueness and so it's supposed to be a little bit funny it's supposed to kind of make us feel uncomfortable um the philosopher Gilles Deleuze says one cannot help but laugh when the codes are confounded and the codes are just like the uh, accepted codes of normalcy and whenever you break free from those it makes you feel uncomfortable and It will elicit a laughter, and I think that's what's going on with this film.
0: Yeah, we talked about that a little bit during the uh, Dark Knight podcast.
3: Somebody
1: wrote, the tiger is the spirit of the nature of man. And another person wrote, the tiger in the LSD lab is maybe showing the source of all the ferocity he's found, the tiger.
0: Huh. Cool. We also got some voicemails to play. Just a reminder, if you guys want to hit us up with uh, thoughts, comments, insights, questions, whatever you want, 213-534-8807. Greg, you want to play a couple? There we go.
4: Hey, this is Scott in Corvallis, Oregon. I just heard the Dark Knight episode of Show Me the Meaning, and I wish I had known you guys were going to do this one. And, um, well, I mean, I got to hear it would have been fun if you had one person on there to take the position of most overrated film of the decade or mm-hmm. something along those lines. Good point. Anyway, the, the one point I really want to hear you guys reflect on, though, um, I'm glad Nietzsche came up. That makes a lot of sense. But the element I was thinking of was way more um, about the Dionysus-Apollo dichotomy and the, the tension between those two poles of human behavior and how we structure society and that Batman is all about the restraint and the code and very much the Apollo and um, the Joker in that particular representation mostly is the overreaction of the Dionysian impulse. Um, Anything to talk about there? If so, uh, look forward to hearing it sometime. Take care, guys. Thanks. Bye.
0: Cool. Well, I mean, I think he nailed it. And I think that that's one of the reasons why
3: this movie can be really appreciated through so many different lenses. I, I think that that, that that fits in perfectly. Is uh, And if for people who are interested, it, Nietzsche talks about this in The Birth of Tragedy and elsewhere, but the distinction between the Apollonian figure and the Dionysian figure. And, you know, the Apollonian figure represents order and law, and the Dionysian figure, you know, Dionysus was the. Greek version of the Roman god Bacchus is the god of wine and dance and celebration and sort of chaos, if you will. And so Nietzsche kind of talks about the juxtaposition between those two figures, and you get that in the establishment or Batman and Harvey Dent, and then, of course, the Joker as being the Dionysian figure.
0: Apollo is the immovable object. Dionysus is the unstoppable force. Amen. Anyway, let's go on to the next one. What you got first, Greg?
4: Hey, Wisecrackers. I just wanted to to say that it's the best show I've ever seen, but the real, but what I really want to ask you guys what is your thoughts on the bat the Batman's law of not killing people? I know it's been debated like a million times, but no real question I want to ask is is it true of how Batman sees killing one person like? He thinks that if he kills one person, it's just a slippery slope to killing all crime. But do you guys think that way too, or is it just you kill one person because you have a standard of killing people? Like the Joker's mad, he wants to burn the world. But, uh, but is that okay? Is the next uh, is the next guy really gonna be that way? I just want to hear your opinion. Okay, bye.
1: That's a good question.
0: Greg, what do you think? If you were Batman and the Joker was killing all these people and he was in your hands, you could kill him, would you do it?
1: Nah, I mean, I think killing is sort of what he wants. Um, I'd rather lock you up and, you know, feed you flies and shit (laughs) like that. Um, I get what Batman is trying to do, but I I see how it can shoot you in the foot as well. It's just like Superman, you know, like... He's the good guy and people just, pl- all of his enemies just play on that. And, you know, like, okay, if you're not going to, I'm going to shoot this over here and make you save all these other people while I just commit the crime that I really want to commit. Uh, You know, it's a double-edged sword, but, you know, they're superheroes and that's what they have to do. Uh I see it, sooner or later you're going to have to kill somebody, though. I mean, know?
0: Batman has to kill Harvey Dent, and interestingly enough, you mentioned Superman, and that was one of the most controversial things about Man of Steel, uh, the last at least, solo Superman movie, and he kills Zod at the end. Yeah. Which is decidedly out of character. Spoiler. I people gave him shit for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, you gave a shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Let's move on to the mailbag. Uh, so, yeah, if you guys want to hit us up with a voicemail, once again, 213 534 8807. Also, if you want to send us an email, uh, movies at wisecrack.co. This one is from Rashawn. He says. Talking about The Dark Knight, I too bought the whole Patriot Act apologist message of the film at one point, but never really developed a counter-interpretation. I just felt it was there, but it wasn't an apologist film. Listening to the conversation where Batman's true heroism lies in giving up that power once the crisis is over reminded me of the concept of a Roman dictator or the idealized version. The dictator had absolute power in times of military crisis or when certain big tasks came up. Upon completing this task of handling the crisis, the dictator ideally would give up his power... Let me know what you think about this. He also sat, he also asks, what are in your mind some of the key elements for a great piece of superhero cinema or television? I'm in the camp of a superhero movie needs to be first and foremost, a good movie before being a good adaptation. Also, I feel Legion season one is one of the, one of the best pieces of superhero television. Some of season two, but not all. Uh, oh, yeah. And can you list some other great superhero films slash TV works? All right. So the first thing is about the Roman dictator, which I believe is is he talking about Cincinnatus? That's what I think he's talking about. Uh, And yeah, I would agree that that's probably a really good parallel because that's the whole thing is that Batman has to kind of become a dictator briefly. But yes, he does give the power up like Cincinnatus ideally did. Well, and at we have this—we
3: the have these measures today. You know, you can suspend martial law, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or, or, or are you, I'm sorry, you can you can announce like martial law, or you can uh, suspend uh, habeas corpus, like Lincoln did it for a short period of time. You can, you can exist within that state where you are kind of like ignoring the laws of the land Uh, Giorgio agamben the philosopher talks about this as the state of exception that the the state the sovereign is able to kind of like exist outside but also inside but it's able to suspend at any given moment to to kind of create its own rules and and be the absolute sovereign at any given point so you're always in that state of indecidability where like totalitarianism or tyranny is is always present because the state can do that at any any whim that it wants to So the idea that Batman has this moral fortitude, like he will never kill and he will never violate his role as a sort of like citizen that abides according to these larger structures of the law is something that is constantly on display. But is it kind of like a bullshit myth is the question.
0: As far as his second question, I – so the thing is is that I don't read comics – and so I'm not super precious about this stuff. So I do believe that as far as I'm concerned, you can throw the source material out the window as long as you're making a good movie. But I know that for other people, like obviously for things that I really care about, like if they were uh, making uh, like a Final Fantasy VII movie, I would be pissed if you know they took certain liberties. So I definitely understand it kind of just depends on where you are in terms of your fandom. Uh, as far as Legion Season 1, Austin, you're a fan of that, right? I love Legion. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. And great other superhero slash tv works.
1: Batman Beyond. If you're into Fuck animation, yeah. I fucking love Batman I Beyond. I love
0: Batman Beyond for sure. Uh, let me think. What are some other good stuff? Uh You ever see that movie Super?
3: Oh, I love Super with uh what's his name? Who who's the main character? Can't remember the guy the actor's name, but I I know what you're talking about. The dude from uh dude from fucking i'm i'm gonna remember um michael Rappaport. we're talking about the
0: same movie say that one more time oh you're talking about the one with the guy from the office
3: that's the one yeah
0: oh see i don't like that movie i'm talking about super rx it's a movie starring michael Rappaport about a, a guy who is undergoes this test uh medicine trial and the medicine ends up making him believe that he has superpowers and it's it's a very touching movie. It's a really cheap indie movie. Michael Rappaport kills it. Amazing performance. It's not your traditional superhero movie, but I think it does work under that label. So that's the one I would recommend, Rashawn. Yeah, Super I mean, RX starring I, Michael I like Rappaport.
3: Those, I like those kind that's why I like Legion. Like I mean I don't know. We we talk about superhero fatigue all the time, but I think if we're gonna like talk about films that we should recommend, like sure, go out and watch all the fucking standard superhero films that you want. But the really exciting ones are the ones that sort of like play with the idea of the relationship between power and madness and delusion and psychological states and like your place in the world and, and stuff like that. So I think that's the fun stuff.
0: Jacob, what is your favorite superhero movie as someone who uh-huh. doesn't really like superhero movies?
2: oh god, I think Dark Knight is up there only because I've probably seen it enough times having you, know, having you by my side to <laughs> give, it, give it perspective. Uh, as you know, I'm not a superhero guy, so I probably would go for like mystery men, <laughs> like some spoof of the genre. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I really am not a superhero guy. Don't know enough about
3: it. It's not superhero, Greg, what? but I mean, we could almost classify Guy Ritchie's Sherlock as being a fucking superhero because yeah. he's so good with quantification that he has like mastered the skills that he kind of transcends the limitations of the human. He's like an extra human, you know? The first yeah. one was great, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah,
1: I loved Supergirl, you guys ever see supergirl on, on t v nah, the movie, oh. no, I didn't, oh man, Supergirl came out probably like late eighties, early nineties, she was hot who 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 played her? <laughs> who knows some oh, hot yeah. white girl, yeah, <laughs> uh, good movie though, really good movie, yeah, I dug it,
0: okay, cool. do you ever see blank man? Of course, yeah, yeah, I saw that as a kid a bunch, oh yeah. my God, blank man. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Really, I remember almost nothing. Although it was a Wayne, one of the Wayans. Oh, What was his character that
3: he played on? Was that it? the, the one that he played on on uh, in Living Color? Like, you think in a way, and he'd fall out yeah, the window yeah. and he'd fly. <laughs> Never
1: underestimate the powers of the handicap. <laughs> oh
3: my God,
1: that, I could not <laughs> totally. make that sketch. None today. of this shit will be getting away with uh, nowadays, <laughs> man. Yeah. Oh None my
3: God, um, I I really like like the ones on Netflix too, Jessica Jones and Daredevil. I think daredevil yeah. is actually really really good the second season I think is was the best um when punisher comes in and Elektra, particularly punisher just because that character was amazing uh and then of course it spun off into its own its own uh season which i think was great but i think that daredevil is really good and i think jessica jones is really interesting but again for the same reasons that i talked about before because they're not just the standard glossy interpretations of superhero films they're kind of like these gritty uh interpretations and i think that's what's fun Cool. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up today. Before we leave, where can we find
0: you guys on the internet? Greg.
1: Hey, I'm on Greg the Grouch on Twitter and Greg Comedy on Instagram. And Greg uh, GregComedy.com is my website. Check me out. And also check out my fucking podcast, man, Black Stage. It's all about comedy. It's on the Wisecrack Network. It's really awesome. Check it out.
3: Cool. And uh, Austin. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I do a philosophy, politics, culture, whatever uh, podcast called Owls at Dawn. You can find it on iTunes or owlsatdawn.com or on Twitter, whatever you can check it out. And Jacob. You can find me on Twitter at Jacob
2: Solomon or anywhere Wisecrack. So at Wisecrack, Wisecrack underscore official on Instagram, Wisecrack.co, YouTube, podcasting, just Wisecrack, Wisecrack, Wisecrack.
0: Cool. All right, guys, signing off. We will see you next time.
1: All the way from Hollywood, California.
0: Peace guys. All the way from Laredo, Texas.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I'm down under. Peace motherfuckers. Right. Happy holidays.